In the final chapters of 2 Nephi, Nephi breaks down his final address to his people into two parts. First, there is a written part where he prophesies of the future. Then there is a spoken part in which he talks about the doctrine of Christ and coming through the gate of baptism. How did Nephi view baptism? How did Nephi view that gate and what was involved? And finally, as his members began to push back, they asked, what comes after we've crossed through the gate? What do we do next? Nephi's explanation is beautiful and instructive and helpful to us as much today as it was then. Join us today as we talk about the purpose of baptism in Nephi's final address to his people and to us. Welcome to the Hidden Treasures podcast, where we explore the rich doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Drawing on both inspired teachings and the latest research, we examine closely the revealed scriptures of the Restoration. Of course, opinions expressed do not constitute official pronouncements of the church or its leaders. These classes are recorded live and taught by Kevin Hinckley. Thank you for taking a moment to subscribe and leave us a comment. And now, on to today's class. All right, well, good morning, and uh, let's go ahead and uh, begin here. Um, I found, interestingly enough, that if you look at the last part of 2 Nephi, and, and we're going to kind of explain why it is there's what the purpose of Isaiah was. Uh, Nephi con- concludes all of his writings and, and kind of basically his life. He's going to do his final sermon in two parts. Um, part one, Second Nephi 25 to 30 was actually written to the future. And so that's one of the reasons why it is there's so much Isaiah, because uh, he, he wanted his, his, his family, he wanted the Gentiles, all that down the road to see kind of what would be happening in the future. And he's going to say, And now I, Nephi, do speak somewhat concerning the words I have written, which have been spoken by the mouth of Isaiah. For behold, Isaiah spoke many things which were hard for many of my people to understand. And we say, wow, I can't understand that. (laughs) It's Isaiah. Wow. Um, For they know not concerning the manner of what? Prophesying. They don't understand the prophesying of the Jews. We were just having a discussion before. It's it's hard sometimes, the more that you study all of this, I start getting a little bit blurry about what's literal and what's figurative. And the Jews were loved figurative, symbolic language. They were masters of the metaphor and parallelism. And, and if you're going to understand the manner of prophesying in the Jews, uh, and so, for instance, we know... Uh, that 70 times 7 does not mean 70 times 7. 40 
years may or may not be 40 years, but 40 days of fasting may or may not be 40. So there is, so kind of coming, and sometimes in our literalism we get caught up in trying to crunch numbers and we miss the, we miss the message being taught behind it. And it, turn, it may turn out that some of the numbers are exactly literal. But in trying to actually work out the data, we're sometimes missing the lesson being taught by the symbolism. And he's trying to say, hey, one of the reasons why they had a hard time with uh, Isaiah uh, and you guys in the future, uh, you need to understand the manner of prophesying among the Jews. So I write unto my people, uh, all those that shall receive hereafter these things which I write that they may know the judgments of God. So the first part of it, especially 25 to 30, uh, as he's doing, he's going to talk about what everything that's coming in the future. Okay. Then the second part of this, he actually, if, if you're listening closely, he's actually, it seems to be part of some kind of sermon. Maybe like King Benjamin, maybe he gathers everybody together in his final days uh, because... Part two, that those last uh, two chapters, 31 to 33, he's going to, is spoken in the present. He's going to say, And now I, Nephi, make an end of my prophesying, that older stuff, unto you, my beloved brethren. Therefore, the things which I have written sufficeth me, save a few words which I must speak. So I'm now going to speak the rest of it. And I want to I want to dial in pretty heavily today on this spoken part of the prophecy. Because he's saying, these guys are right in front of me, and, I, and I'm going to speak concerning the doctrine of Christ. So really today is about the doctrine of Christ, because it's like these are my final uh, speaking to my people, and the, and the last thing I want them to know is the doctrine of Christ. So... So this is the figurative present, not the literal present? <laughs> I think this is the literal present. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> this part ends up being, okay, they're literally right in front of me. But the funny thing is, I'm going to have a, they will end up being published so that ultimately those in the future also get that as well. Okay? So, but there is some great literal uh, figurative stuff in here. Okay. So, in order to do this, Let's go backwards just a little bit because I want to I want to go back to what he said. They know not concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. So let's take a second and look again at some of the symbolism of the Jews because he's still steeped in that and he's going to start to teach this rolling forward. Um, and so there's, there's several parts of the, the symbolism that I think really are going to kind of set up uh, what we're talking about here. Okay, now, first of all, we need to understand, and, and again, this, most of this I think we've gone over over the years in our classes and stuff. This, this shouldn't be new information. No, we're just revisiting to remind. Okay, so what are the four characteristics of a covenant? Uh, there seems to be four basic covenants in covenant making between uh, two entities. A covenant is made between two parties who enter into a mutual agreement. And the, the Hebrew Bible is filled with all kinds of covenant making between God and prophets, God and his people. There's all kinds of covenant making. 
But it's also steeped in the fact of how they would make covenants with one another. Okay? Uh, so, Craig, if you and I were, if I were going to send you a, if I were going to sell you a house or some sheep or something, and we're going to have a covenant between us, I would probably weird you out a little bit because just before I did that, I would probably reach over and grab the inside of your leg. <laughs> and you'd go, well, that's part of the covenant. We're going to, they would reach over and they would grab the inside of a man's loins because that's where his most value is. That's how he has progenitors. It's in that area. And so part of that ancient covenant was doing something like that. Or I might say, okay, Mike, I'm going to sell you something, but I'm going to take my calf over here and I'm going to saw it in half. And part of the calf will be here and part of the calf will be here. And then you and I are going to walk in between the halves. And that's part of that covenant-making kind of thing. And these are rituals that are part of that covenant-making process, and they can be a little bit different. Uh, these days, if we're going to have a deal, I would be more likely to do what? Shake hands. Shake hands. So the shaking of a hand is more of a current that says we have a covenant, we have a, an agreement between us of what you'll do and what I'll do, okay? Which is a little bit better than sawing our animals in half. <laughs> That's a little more weird, right? Okay, so the parts of this. Promises are made. I think I should sell my land to you. I think I should do this. All right, awesome. Okay, now promises are made. Now, to maybe cement the process, though, covenants are going to be solemnized through a ritual. And there's going to be some kind of ritual that is specific to that group of people, their culture. Um, and we have all kinds of rituals. If, if Cindy and I decide to get married, we're going we're gonna to solemnize that by a ritual that would include what? Jumping the broom. <laughs> yeah, you could jump the broom. Okay, depending on where you are. Okay. In, in, in this case, it was finding our... Uh, our uh, when I decided I wanted to, to start to seal the deal here, I went to our elders quorum president who had gone to South Africa on a mission and he was starting a little diamond business that he had flowing in, a guy by the name of uh, Keith Wilson. And Keith had a, uh, he had like a bunch of diamonds in his garage. <laughs> so I, I went over to his house and we opened up and he had like diamonds in little cases in his garage and I picked out a diamond and then it was gonna he was gonna have it set into a ring uh, and so then there's that part of it so that I can then complete my part of the contractual deal to then go over to where she's working and pull her out and say and we stand out on the front porch of that and this is after we have so we've already had kind of an agreement that I think we're going to get married, but we haven't sealed the deal yet because we haven't had the ring. How am I doing so far? Okay. <laughs> in, in the telling of the ritual, <laughs> uh, she's going to have some other version that doesn't. <laughs> so, so I'm going, I'm going to put the ring on her finger 
out on the porch of the place where she works with some of her coworkers framed in the window watching us as, as I'm trying to fumble to put a ring on her finger. Um, I always think about that when I go to Provo and I see Wilson diamonds all over the place and I think about early. Now, okay, now you're allowed to add any other little piece you want to that. No, that's fine. But I was going to say, uh, one, of the, one of the places that I noticed in the Book of Mormon is where Nephi is chasing Zoram and going to tackle him and Zoram is scared to death and it says that when he saw that Nephi had made an oath yes. that he ceased worrying. There's a and I, always re I always remember thinking that's so strange so Nephi promised him he's not going to hurt him. But what he does is that he, he makes some kind of physical something. Yeah, something. Whether that's uh, whatever. Okay. And he sees that he's serious about it because he's made an oath. And the oath requires some kind of physical and, and, and the Book of Mormon's full of those. I mean, think, think about the point. How many times in the Book of Mormon wars, it's like, okay, we're going to battle, you know, Zarahemna, quit doing this kind of stuff. If you guys will drop your weapons and walk away, we'll let you walk away. I, I can't imagine a war these days where they say, okay, if you put your weapons away, you have to, but you have to promise not to come back and fight us. Okay, so we'll trust that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm just thinking Zoram's there and he hears him say, we can't leave any witnesses. <laughs> and then Nephi, you know, everybody's all-American who just got off the forge, is standing there and he's saying, well, I'll put this guy under covenant. And the bean counter Zoram, you know, a little scrawny guy with glasses. You, know. <laughs> you, you kind of filled in some details here. <laughs> That's the art, it's a writer. You, know. you can't leave me behind, but you will take me with you and you won't kill me. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. And you almost wonder, he says, and by the way, if we ever get any wives, you get the oldest one. <laughs> Maybe you get first pick. <laughs> you know, who knows what the promises were. Yeah. I'm just going to say that this, this comes into why um, Israel was so ashamed of his sons uh, who, regarding Dinah and what happened uh, to that Valley village that wanted to intermarry. Yeah. Yeah, again, if you made promises and you made covenants, you're, you're, you're breaching things. It's an incredible breach. It's, it's a, you know, man's word is his bond. Think about the Texas way of handling things. We don't need no stinking contract. He said he would. Dang it, so he will. <laughs> I'll get my horse. Okay? Now, so a lot of times it's solemnized with a, with a ritual, but it still needs, as most covenants, they need a token or a sign. There has to be an outward sign of the covenant that's taken place. Yeah. Just on the point of the ritual, the ritual is going to be something that's just weird enough that it <laughs> yes. wouldn't happen by accident. That's right. Nobody gets baptized by accident. If that is something you have to intentionally yeah, do. Unless you're missionaries in the 60s in England. And then you start having everybody play baseball. And by the way, one of the baseball practices, guys, you bring some white clothes. 
And there were a lot of baptisms that came out of, by the way, this is part of the, uh, in order to play, you got to get baptized. Okay, we're going to baptize. Submit those numbers. <laughs> the, the scandal of baseball baptisms was still rich when I arrived in the in mid-70s. But even those weren't accidental. Those were, those were duplicitous. <laughs> they were duplicitous. And yet, the funny thing is, a good friend of ours is, is a member of the church, and her, and her sons are bishops who came that route. So it's kind of funny. Anyway, all right. So a covenant has an outward sign. There's going to be a physical sign or a token that the covenant has taken place that would be noticed so everybody would see and witness that something is happening. Okay? So we're always looking for, it's going to, there's going to be a ritual, there's going to be an outward sign that will be part of that ritual. And then that covenant has going to have conditions and obligations that need to be met. We're going to promise to fulfill. Okay, we, we good so far? That makes sense? All right, so there, there's a covenant. Now, before we take a look again at, at 2 Nephi 31, there's two other symbols that I want to run by you so that you can then start to plug it in to this structure in this, in this covenant. Doves. Boy, did I learn something this week that I did not know. Um, I, I, in, a, in a variety of places, I have talked uh, a lot about the fact that especially before the purging of Josiah, that a lot of Israelites had kind of a, a dual worship that they worshipped. They worshipped Jehovah, and they would go to the temple. Uh, they also worshipped his consort, Asherah, or Asherah, um, the, the female uh, part of Jehovah, Asherah, and this isn't, the Ash, this isn't like the Shira parts that were associated with Baal worship in the groves in the, in the north. This is what they were doing mainly around Judea. So they would build these, these Asherah shrines to worship her. And, and in, again, Jeremiah 44, he talks about we worship the queen of heaven and we, and we gave oblations to her and we gave drink offerings with oil or wine. And they would, and he says, and we would bake cakes to the queen of heaven. And they worshiped her and they loved her. Okay. And they believe when you look like in Proverbs, you're going to see her, you're going to hear her voice. That's Asherah. What I didn't know as I started researching doves associated with baptism is that they had um, little portable shrines that they would take home. So you kind of got to go into the Iron Age. Again, this is pre-Josiah, pre-Hezekiah. So, they so they're really, really old. But they would have these little shrines that they would take home and they were Asherah shrines. So again, we're going to worship Jehovah when we go to the temple and we keep the law of Moses. But in our fertility, and especially if you're a mom, you know, and you're wanting to have kids, or maybe the land isn't producing well, you would lean a little heavier on Asherah. You'd go to the Asherah shrines, and you can see them, and they dot around Judea. You can find these Asherah shrines. There's usually two big poles in front of a little shrine where they would go. But this is the home version. Anybody notice anything about the home version? The doves. They almost always had a doves. And there was actually, as I read about it, and, I, and doing a lot of research on this, it turns out that, that the dove, we've always seen the Asherah shrines as a tree. The tree of life is her symbol. But 
But in these versions also, another sign of Asherah was a dove. Okay? That, that um, in a sense, it was... Uh, one of the, there's a couple of images that they would get on this. One was um, that when God is creating the world... And it says the spirit was brooding over the waters. Okay, and that and that word brooding is is, ro, is roach, and it means it's a, it's female, and it's just like this brooding, this sensing, and and they kind of got that with the, like the cooing of a dove. It was one of those places they would get it. So when so when Noah then is sitting on on the boat and they want to know have the flood has the flood left. And he, what does he send out? A dove. Okay, so that dove was going to go out and find land, find <coughs> fertility. It's, it's changing. We're, okay, so there was a sense and a gratefulness. And so she came to be kind of associated with uh, the, the Shekinah, the, the, the power of God, the light, that spirit side of things. Okay, so you get these, you get these little Asherah shrines. Um, and, and, and there's one other place this shows up at and that when they were digging underneath the temple in Jerusalem uh, they found <coughs> it's really kind of remarkable I don't know if you can see that really well alright there's two things here Th this was a uh, on a on a like a stone uh, vessel my light oh, there it is uh, it's not working alright you, you can actually see like across the top you can see four Hebrew words and that, that's, that's Corbin the first one's a K uh, an R and then Corbin okay and it means sacrifice you're going to give a sacrifice, okay? And what do you see underneath Corbin? Doesn't Corbin mean dedicated to the Lord as opposed to sacrifice? By sacrifice. Okay. But by sacrifice. And, and, and that's why... Man, I wish this would work. It ain't. Supposed to be. Okay. Anyway, can, can, you, see the, uh, can you see the dead dove? Lying on his back, there's two of them. Okay, so it's like they're they're dead and their their legs are their legs are up right underneath Corbin. Okay, if you didn't have a ram and you didn't have a sheep and you were going to go to the temple to sacrifice, what would you sacrifice? Two turtle doves, right? Okay, and so th this is actually oh, that's weird. Okay. Yeah, this is actually kind of attesting to the fact that they were that they were indeed just like the Bible says they were sacrificing doves as part of that that sacrifice. This would be that symbolic the the power of doves. So hang on to that idea when we get to Jesus' baptism. That's going to mean something to them more than it meant necess necessarily means to us. Okay, c can you guys see it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Either side of the thing that looks like marbles, they're on the left. Uh, uh, up on top? 
They do kind of look like monkeys. If you'll turn, if you'll stand on your head and look around, though, they're dead doves. In the background. Oh, oh, oh. He, you know what those are? Believe it or not, part of the the shrines. Almost always, and there's a bunch of them. And I just chose representative. These little shrines would also have. She would have two lions. And, and so, believe it or not, those believe it or not, those are lions. I know they do look like monkeys. Yes, don't they? No, those. Are the, if you if you can see a bunch of them, there's the, they almost have, always have lions. The bigger Asherah uh, shrines had pillars that they would put on. The smaller one had lions. Yeah. I was just going to say, but then it would be kind of like the space. Keep thinking that, <laughs> because there is some of this knowledge and symbolism that will go out because I don't know where where else I don't know whenever whenever we take groups out across uh, the Greek islands or Rome or something like that the goddess that rules those places is always female Ath Athens Athena uh, you go to Ephesus and, and you're going to run into uh, um, Artemis uh, Go to, to Delos. Go to, I mean, everywhere we go, it's the female goddess kind of rules the place and just about everything. And, and there is a sense that there was a, a worship of female deities all over. Uh, and, it was, and we had a, a Greek guide with us in, in Santorini a couple of years ago, and she talked about how uh, when, when uh, Christianity came in under Constantine and they're trying to convert all of the the uh, those that have been steeped in Greek myth and she says yeah we just kind of made some modifications we just flipped it over so instead of having Artemis now we had who Mary so we want to venerate a female deity kind of thing say so anyway but but the symbol of that especially for those in the Near East there was going to be doves so that does become really important. Okay. Kevin? Yeah. That, those are two lions on the one on the left. Uh huh. The uh huh. Right. What's the up on the top? Is that a? That's a dove. That's a dove. I know it looks like a chicken. Oh, and then you actually have. Oh, you know what? Those might. I think those are still two doves. There seems to be three doves, right? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's it's funny if you if you if you want to have fun, just go into Google and put like Ashira and doves, and you're going to see all of the. There was just bunches of them. It's, it's really kind of fun. Okay, so that's symbol number one. There's the Corbin and the and the dead turtle doves. Here's symbol number two, that I think is really important. Here, we have to remember that if you if you have sheep. In agrarian society, during the day, you're going to actually bring your sheep to a close enclosure in the in town, in in the village. You don't want to be hanging out as long, too long, because robbers or marauders or somebody might come and take you and your sheep out. So you bring them home. Now, for longer stretches, though, you're gonna you're gonna take them out onto greener pastures. Uh, uh, th think of the 23rd Psalm. You know, we're going to go out to green pastures, the higher grass. 
you know, where we were, we were just coming uh, a few weeks ago as we were coming near uh, Jericho, off to the side of the road are these sheep and they're all grazing alongside the freeway, okay? That's because it's spring. They, the grass is growing here, okay? Now, if we got to July, probably they wouldn't necessarily be here. They've got to take them to higher places so they can feed in green pastures. But you still got to protect them while you're out there. So what would they do? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to create these little sheepfolds, uh, and you're going to have, um, and you can just take rocks, and you just got to build either a cave enclosure or rocks or something, so you can build this sheepfold up on top of a mountain, anywhere, anywhere you want to go. But it has to be characterized by a single small entrance. Why? So like sheep don't get out. Don't Number one, they can't get out. What else? It could be protective. Why? Narrow. It's narrow. In other words, it could be guarded by a single shepherd sitting in, in the midst. That's why Christ says, I am the door. Okay, he says, I'm sitting there. And, and, not, and it has one other purpose, by the way. Um, th there's a, a point in the Old Testament, and I'm trying to remember, where he talks about counting people by running them under the rod. A single shepherd could stand in the mouth of the, of the sheepfold at the gate, and he could hold the rod out and then count them as they're going underneath the rod. Okay, but also thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, that rod was, as we've talked about, was oftentimes an iron rod. Or it was a rod with a hard gnarled end with maybe iron on top of it that could actually protect the sheep from, from that door. Okay, could be very, very protective there. Okay, I'm going to protect you. Um, but it also has to make sure then that I can keep predators out. I'm going to allow who I allow into the sheepfold and I will keep the pretenders, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing or anybody that might tear up the sheep, I'm going to protect those. And the shepherd does that. Remember, he doesn't employ a servant there. Servants may not care. Here comes someone to attack and get the sheep. A, a, a servant may run. The, the shepherd stays there. That's why I employ no servant there. I'm going to check and see who comes into my sheepfold and who doesn't. But they're going to have to come where? Through the gate. They've got to come in through the gate. So how tall are those walls? Yeah, I was looking at that too. I, I thought, you know, for a lot of these things, because um, which is even more funny, is that so often for a long time, one of the reasons that they had lions as motifs is that there were a lot of lions in the Near East. And it seemed like a lion could hop the fence pretty easily, or at least slow them down. Or if I wanted to be a, uh, a robber and go steal a couple of sheep for dinner, it seemed like they could climb over. Maybe it's harder to get the sheep over. You can't get the sheep out without going through the gate. It would be tough. But I would think the lions... It seemed like they could sprint over that thing, doesn't it? Okay, so... So when it comes to gates, th think about how important gates begin to be, okay? So I was talking before about the, uh, that one of the places, th there are some traditional places for the, for the, the triumphal entry of the Savior, uh, just his last week of his life, okay? 
that a lot of times I think it was either coming through the beautiful gate, which is on the south, uh, or or one of the like the there's just a lot of Jerusalem is marked by gates, and you like to go around Jerusalem and find the Dung Gate, the Damascus Gate. Uh, this particular one is the Lion Gate, uh, and the Lion Gate. Um, uh, flanked on either side near the top of the arch. If you look to either side, there are lions there. Now, that's fascinating because originally this gate was not the lion gate. It was the sheep gate. It's on the, it's, it's on the side closest to the temple. And, it, and the, you went through the sheep gate and the sheep were immediately then taken up into the temple compound. Okay, And it's my belief, if you look at where the the uh, poles of Bethsaida are and stuff like that relative to that. I think this is the gate that Jesus came through on his triumphal entry. Okay, I really do. I think he came through the sheep gate. It's my own. Uh, it's not just mine. It's, it's a number of scholars that I've read. But that's the smaller one at the back. Okay, the larger one was built by the, the Ottoman Turks. Oh, our, our buddy Suleiman the Great. When the Ottoman Turks sweep in and they conquer Jerusalem, what they're going to do is, I don't think he liked the idea, now he owns this big city, I don't think he liked the idea of a sheep gate. So what he did, in pure Ottoman fashion, is that they then created the Lion Gate. So the Lion Gate was superseding over the top of the sheep gate, and so this is now the Lion Gate, and it's got, it's got lions on either side. Okay? that fun? Where, where did you get that idea? Well, a few years ago when we, just if you go south of, sounds like I'm, I'm doing a travel log here. Oh, we're running short on time. If you, go to, if you go to the city of Corinth on the peninsula, and then you go straight down about an hour out of Corinth, you run into the castle of Agamemnon. I know I'm pronouncing that poorly. Agamemnon, okay. And you can see Sparta from there. Okay, it's kind of cool. But if, but if you walk through the, that castle of Agamemnon, here on, on the left, uh, uh, there's, there's the arch into the castle, and, and you look above it, and what do you see? You see the lions? And they're both kind of standing inside that arch. Okay? So, again, the purpose of a gate was to de designate who's going to come in, and you're going to come in past the lion gate. Or, and, and so in the middle of all of this, then, this idea of, of gates become really important. You're going to cross from the world out here in, through the gate and into that, and into that uh, pasture area. So, one last, one last piece I want to throw out here. Yeah. Is there an eye of the needle? No. Again, we, we talk about the symbolism versus the... Remember where they all talk about it's easier for a rich man to go through the... Now. I know. We're, it's so small, the, ca the camel has to take all the stuff off and get down to get... No. Remember... Similar literalism, you know, it's like, but the, but the concept is really cool, <laughs> you know, that we have to be, no, the, the gates into the temple are massive, okay, all right, 
So one last thing on the gates. For the sheep are going to come. This is where they. Where, this is where they are at evening. Where are they the rest of the day? They're in the pasture. Okay. So anybody that's admitted through the gate, it's going to stay safe for a while, and then most of the time they're going to be out doing other things out in the world. Okay. So you don't spend you don't spend the rest of your life inside the sheepfold. Right? You don't spend every minute in sacrament meeting, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and we don't dare go out into that world. We're supposed, we are His. We will be marked His. And then we go out and we mix with the world. Okay? I, I love that symbolism. Okay? All right. All right. It's the Damascus Gate here. Because Nephi is going to set this up, and then we'll look at, we'll hop into the scriptures here. Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. There is none other way, save it be by the gate. So it would be important to know what the gate is. Right? And how that works. Okay? Now, for he cannot be deceived. Hold on to that idea. There are some that are going to try and come in by the gate and they are deceptive. And that's one of the reasons why he employeth no servant there. He's got to know who's deceiving. And, and he'll, he'll come back to this in a sec. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I gotta say this. Okay. Just a reminder, we've talked about this a little bit before. Uh, Matthew 3 2. In those days came John the Baptist. So he's he's looking in the future and he's gonna say, Okay, I can see John the Baptist out there, and the King James Version is gonna say, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they went out and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay? That's, that's a Middle Ages translation through the King James Version, which the vast majority of the time is beautiful, and we love it, and we embrace it. And Every now and then, though, it's good to get a little different perspective. The Aramaic Bible says, In those days, Johanan, the baptizer, came... And was preaching in the desert. And he said, Return to God, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn around. So that, that repent is a, again, was a, a vulgate term that is centuries later. Return to God, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this was he of whom it was said by Isaiah the prophet, a voice cries in the desert, prepare the ways of the Lord, level his paths. We talk about making straight and stuff like that. Level it. Remove the obstacles. Okay? Level his paths. Then Jerusalem and all Judea were going out in the whole region. They were being baptized him while confessing their sins. Okay, all right, so got that in mind? 
Questions so far? Yeah. Was baptism not generally uh, practiced at the time? What were they? No, nobody was baptizing. What were they doing? That's a great question. What was John doing? And in, in, they were baptizing. What were they doing? They were just doing sacrifices at the temple. At the temple, right? But what are they doing in the river? Wasn't there a cleansing? Order? There was. The, the, there was mikvah, or the mikvah oat. And that is, that is the process of cleansing yourself. And, and so now you come back to this idea, why were they... Why were they doing this? Why were they being plunged down into the water and being... Did all your body have to touch water to help cleanse it? It wasn't so a matter of cleansing your physical body. Think of what we've just been talking about, rituals. Spiritual. Yeah. And so, like, if you go to, uh, if you go to Qumran and you're walking around where the, the, the Essenes were... You can see where the Dead Sea Scrolls were seen. You walk around and there are mikvahot everywhere. They're, they're cleansing pools that ritually they're going to be clean before they start transcribing the words of Isaiah or whatever they were trying to do. It was a cleansing. It was a spiritual cleansing process similar to what they would do to get ready to go into the temple. That's why the Sheep Gate sits next to the pools of Beth Bethsaida because they would come, if you're a pilgrim, you'd come and you would ritually clean in the pool before you'd then step up into the temple. So it's more like initiatory. Okay? It's what, it's what they were doing. But it's an, it's an outward symbol of a covenant. It's an outward symbol that anybody would know, oh, they're, they're cleansing themselves. Yeah. You mean there had never been any baptisms? No. But, but baptism, again, baptism's the way that that they were doing it, part of what the Savior ends up doing with his apostles and everybody and sending them out, were they baptizing for, they, they, were, they were cleansing themselves. To, hold on to that. Hold, hold on to that idea because Nephi is going to tell you what it is. Okay. okay, we're jumping ahead. Okay? All right. So, facts, let's go there. Before we get into this is the way for those who have been watching The Mandalorian. Okay. All right. Let's see. Let me do this. Okay. By the time we get to Nephi, they're starting. They are starting. The, boy, the Nephites were interesting. You've got this Old Testament Jewish law of Moses abiding people who are becoming who doing Christianity, and they're mixing the two together. It's just. It's really kind of fun to watch. Okay. Uh, let's see. I, I would just remember concerning the prophet that he should baptize the Lamb of God. And go, oh, what's he doing? Well, if the Lamb of God, being holy, should need to be baptized by water to, to do what? <coughs> See, our presentism, our belief now is, well, you were, you're worthy, you're unworthy, 
you're filthy, you're going to go into the water of baptism, you come up out of the water, now you're completely clean. So the idea of it's, it's cleansing all of your sins. Okay, and it's what we teach the primary kids. It's, it's the way we believe it, and it's not right. Yeah. So uh, the remission of your sins is, is a byproduct of the baptism. And, and the baptism is a cup It is, exactly. That's right on. Okay, and, 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 and we need to understand the difference. That's why we're trying to make sure that we have in our minds what we're talking about. Because he's going to go, wait a minute, if the Lamb of God being holy needs to be baptized, and you go, well, he doesn't have any sins. By the way, eight-year-olds don't have sins either. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> the sin was on the heads of their parents, remember? But we're always saying to eight-year-olds, oh, you're, gonna, you're full of sins, and you come up out of the water clean. <laughs> okay, they don't have any sins. But I, the concept works for them. Okay. All right, now, the Lamb of God being holy should need to be baptized uh, to fulfill all righteousness. What righteousness? Um, well, then what more need have we being unholy to be baptized even by water? And then you go, you'd say, wait, wait a minute. And maybe his people were saying this to him as well. Well, <clears throat> I, you would ask my beloved brother, wherein was the Lamb of God? Where did fulfill all righteousness and being baptized by water. What was the purpose? What was the symbolic purpose behind the baptism? How come he's doing that? Well, don't you know he's holy? But notwithstanding him being holy, he showed unto the children of men according to the flesh. He humbleth himself before the Father and witnesses. And this is what baptism is. This is, this is the symbolism behind the act. What, it, what is it we are doing that makes baptism the gate through which we enter. He's going to tell you. He humbleth himself and witnesses unto the Father that we would what? Be obedient. Be obedient. That's what baptism is. It's a witnessing. It's a symbol that anybody looking at it would look at it and say, I am witnessing before God and Whatever witnesses and angelic people that might be there. Okay? I'm witnessing that I would be obedient and keep his commandments. Wow. All right. That's what he said. That's, guys, that's why you're being baptized. You're going to witness that you're going to be obedient. Now, by the way, Alma had his own spin on it. What obedience did, did Alma want? In the, in, in the book of Mosiah, if you want to be baptized, um, Laura, if you want to be baptized according to Alma, you've got some things you've got to be willing to do, right? Are you willing to take upon the name of Christ? Are you what? Willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. That's, that was like the baptismal interview apparently to Alma. I think I want to come in through the gate. Okay, let me ask. Are you willing to be a witness? Yes. Are you willing to mourn with those who mourn? Yep. Comfort those who stand needing comfort? Yep. Okay, come on in. Let's, let's baptize you as a witness that you're going to do that for the rest of the flock. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Here we go. So, Jesus does that, and then he gets what? Verse 8. Wherefore, after he was baptized by water, the Holy Ghost descended on him. How? 
No form of the dove. We've always wondered, was there an actual physical dove? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I thought, well, it was gently. You know, the spirit descended on him. Or no. I think if, 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 if we understand the symbol of a dove to that first century Judaism, a dove showing up means tons. It means this is the symbol of God to Noah. This is Ruach. This is the spirit descending and a dove. And for those that had understood Asherah worship, this means God approves. In about 10 different ways. That dove thing would have been like, <gasps> you would have heard a collective gasp. <gasps> it's a dove. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's a physical witness of a covenant. Because yeah. God had made covenant to his people. I won't destroy them anymore, right? And the physical sign of that was a dove. Isn't that awesome? So it, it had to be this way because it teaches something. Um, and, and again, it showeth, verse 9, it shows unto the children of men the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate. You've got to come in through the gate uh, having set the example, and then he said unto the children of men in ten, follow thou me. Keep the commandment. You've witnessed by coming into the gate, you're going to follow me. And shall we be willing to keep the commandments of the Father? And I, I had to read this carefully. And let me come back to you to say. And the Father said, repent ye, repent ye, be baptized in the name of my beloved Son. I wasn't sure if he was looking to the future or if he was talking about now. I kept going back and forth. This, but I think what I think it's, I think it was in real time, and I'll and I believe that because right below this he's going to say, verse fifteen, and I heard a voice from the Father. Oh, so picture this for a second. Nephi is apparently talking to the people. We're having a discussion. And he's preaching this stuff and it says, and the voice of the Father speaks to him. Did the rest of the crowd hear it? I don't know. But certainly he heard the voice of the Father saying, repent, repent, tree, there be baptized. Yeah. So Joseph Smith thought that the Holy Ghost couldn't be transformed into a dove. Yeah. And, and that he came in the sign of a dove, not in the form of a dove. Right. So that was a symbol of. It was like the Holy Ghost was crammed inside a bird kind of thing. But that was the symbol of. Exactly right. Okay, so. Yeah. No, don't be confused. It's not worth it. You're saying that John, nobody was baptized before John? Oh, no. They were cleansing on a regular basis. The Mormon and all of that. Oh, yeah. Okay, let, 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 let's break it up. She's saying, uh, I'm not sure, I'm still trying to understand that there wasn't really baptism before that. In the old world, in, in the law of Moses, they did regular cleansings in, in the cleansing baths, the mikvah And they still do that. And they still do that, okay? And so they did that on a regular basis, and part of what John was doing was that... <laughs> cleansing of a new covenant that we're going to, the kingdom of God and we're getting ready to to do this now go to the book of mormon the book of mormon is mixing christianity and an understanding of christ with the law of moses and they were baptizing in the book of mormon 
Oh yeah, they're baptizing a lot. Because that was the covenant, part of because Nephi and Jacob and others are looking to the future and they're going, oh, we see John the Baptist. And there is a, there's a cleansing process going on. And Nephi, here before he dies, is saying, be baptized this way. So for the rest of the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon people are baptizing for sure. Because they're mixing the two. That would have been confusing to the people in Jerusalem. But these guys got it because if you just, without this vision, I don't know what they would have done to set, to set up a covenant. They might have done a, just a cleansing mikvah. But because they've seen the vision and Jesus is going to come baptizing and change that whole ordinance, yeah, they were baptizing like crazy. What yeah. were they doing before the flood for the ordinance of baptism? Well, the, in a sense, what they were doing was bringing it back, right, before the law of Moses. Because who was the first person that we know was baptized? Adam. Adam. Sure. And the Spirit's going to take him underneath the water and then Eve. And so they're doing that. It's one of those things that was lost. Uh, but the law of Moses is going to change it. I'm sure Enoch was baptizing. I'm sure that uh, pretty good chance that probably Noah was baptizing. So in the, in the New Testament when it says uh, why then do they baptize for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Is this after Christ has died that they're baptizing for the dead and it's the, the members of his church or who is it? Boy that's a good question. And, and I, I've, 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 when I've looked at this, especially if you look at New Testament like N.T. Wright looks at 1 Corinthians 15 and he goes, I have no idea. Because <laughs> we don't have, in, in antiquity, we don't have any records. He says, apparently somebody was baptizing for the dead. We don't know who it was and he couldn't find any records of it. This logic was logic that was proposed to people who didn't believe in the church. So therefore, he wouldn't be referring to the church. Well, that we know of, could have been, because by the time they set up things in Corinth, they already have house churches in Thessalonica and Antioch and the rest. So they might have been doing it. But you don't have a lot of other understanding and knowledge. It is one of the great, it's truly one of the great mysteries that's out there. Okay, so he's going to hear from the Father. Then he's going to say, verse 14, for those of us. Uh, and behold, my beloved brethren, thus cameth the voice of the Son unto me, saying, after ye have repented of your sins and witnessed to the Father, and witnessed unto the Father, you're willing to keep my commandments by baptism. You've done that sign, okay? And have received the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost, then you can speak with a new tongue, okay? Um, and then he gets the backup from the Father, verse 15. Yay, that's true, okay? Um, and then look at 17. Wherefore, do the things I told you to do, because you've seen your Lord and your Redeemer should do. For this cause they've been shown unto me, that ye might know the gate by which you should enter. Then he's going to get really clear. What's the gate? Well, for the gate by which you should enter is repentance and baptism by fire. And then when does the remission of sins come? After. Okay? The remission of your sins comes how? By fire and by the Holy Ghost. Okay? And I think, so I think there's a lot of times people get baptized, and it may be years after before this baptism of fire comes. For some, like uh, in 3 Nephi 9, 
the Savior is telling through Samuel that the bunch of the Lamanites had the remission of sins before they even know what it was. He says they, they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they did not yet know what it was, it says. So the remission of sins comes when you are filled with the Holy Ghost and it cleanses you and that could be before, beginning, after, but it's, but it's separate. And then, 18, he says you're in this straight, narrow path which leads to eternal life, which President Nelson would call what? The covenant path. The ancient, that's why, but if you, were an, if you were a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem, follower of Jesus, Jesus in Corinth, or Antioch, or Thessalonica, or Ephesus, and they would say, who do you belong to? They would say, I am members of what? The way. The way was the name of the church. It's the way. Because Jesus is the way the truth and the life. Okay? They're members of the way. And we even have... Um, no. No. Although that works, right? Very nice. I see where you're going there. Uh, no, we actually have Roman historians talking about they're members of the way in our town. Okay? It's kind of cool. But it, it, it describes a path. Think of a path. Think of a journey. Okay? Then you're in this straight and narrow path. So, now by the way, I do think this is interesting. If you go to the next chapter, some of these guys don't get it. So I don't know if this is like the next day he's preaching. Here comes the next day, and he goes, verse 1. And now, my, behold, my beloved brethren, I suppose that ye ponder somewhat in your hearts concerning that which you should do after you've entered in, by the way. What comes next? Um, we, had, uh, we had some guys in, uh, in, in our ward. Uh, in fact, I, I talked to two of them back to back. Bishop, you'd appreciate this. Two of them back to back yesterday. And it's like, I've been baptized about four months. Well, I've been, okay, about, I was baptized just recently. Okay, and now they're coming to the, Bishop brings them to the single adult ward. Okay, now that you're baptized, you're a young adult, let's drop you into the ward. Okay. About four months. I says, oh, I can, you're still wet behind your ears <laughs> from baptism. Okay? Um, and they're kind of asking this question. I got baptized. What's next? <laughs> where, do I, where do I go from here? The whole thing was about hear about the gospel, read the Book of Mormon, get a testimony, finish the lessons, get baptized, go to church. <laughs> now what do I do? <laughs> what does the rest of my life look like? Going forward, okay. It's on the video. I had to show you the video. We made, Plano State did a great video for these guys, and and one of them, I, I've got. I'm interviewing. Why should everybody come to the YSA? And they're going. You know, it's a good place to meet, and they're your age and stuff like that. And then I went to one, and I said, "How come?" She says, "Oh, this is a really good place." I says, "Is there any other reason?" And she goes, "Oh, yeah, you could get engaged." <laughs> Which I thought was really cute. Um, all right. So, what do you do once you've entered in, by the way? Well, to quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. <laughs> let's, let's describe this. By the way, I thought it was, if you haven't seen the Mandalorian, you really should. Because this is their stock statement. That this is the way. 
I thought, yes, it is. Except we don't have to wear helmets. <laughs> okay? All right. So, where does it start? The whole thing starts with a desire to return to God, to reconcile. And there's going to be three parts to that. I wish, and it's in 2 Nephi 32. Uh, you have to come with full purpose, no deception, and real intent. Do you really want to do this? Yes, I really want to do this. Okay, real intent. Okay, so if you have this desire to return to God, now you're going to set up a covenant. You're going to go through the gate, which means what? What's the next step? What, do, what have you against being baptized, right? So now comes this, so that I will witness to anybody else and to the Father that I'm willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, okay? I'm going to do this outward sign, this outward covenant to say I'm taking this step. So that means I'm going to go through the gate, and that, of course that gate is baptism, okay? Now... Okay, congratulations, you've done that. Now what? Well, next step. Somewhere in there comes a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. It is interesting. I, I mentioned in, uh, in our ward yesterday, I had a, a lady not too long ago, just in the last couple of weeks, who sat in my office and she said, I realize that I'm just really kind of not celestial kingdom material. I'm kind of one. She says, I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm like a middle person. Some people will go, and I said, so you don't think you're going to be in the celestial kingdom? She says, no, I just don't feel like I'm there. I think I'm just kind of this middle thing. And I said, I'm not there either. <laughs> I, I haven't arrived either. I'm kind of, I'm not even in the middle. I'm kind of in the mushy bottom here. But that's not the point. <laughs> the, the point is that none of us are. We're not. And, 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 this, and this process of making it to the celestial kingdom is a place that none of us are prepared for. But the Savior is going to work with us till we do. Okay. Then cometh the remission of your sins. And then what? And then, he says, then you are in this straight and narrow path. Yea, ye entered in by the gate. And now, but now we're on this path. And you go, well, then what comes next? Well, it's the interest of time here. Mm, I want to do this. Listen to what he's going to say here. And maybe, maybe we'll kind of wrap up with this. Okay, remember, verse 1. You're part, what do you do next after you've entered into the way? And I told you that after you received the Holy Ghost, you could speak with the tongue of angels. Well, that's kind of cool. And, we could, and I thought about taking a whole lesson on the tongue of angels, which is a great lesson, by the way. And now how could you speak by the tongue of angels if it wasn't with the Holy Ghost? See, they speak by the power of the Holy Ghost and they speak the, Christ, the words of Christ. Therefore I said unto you, feast on those words. And then here's what, you, here's what happens 
after you enter in by the way. After you cross through the gate and now you're in the sheepfold, he's going to tell you. Now what do you do? Bottom of three. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you what? All things you should do. What comes next? It's what Christ tells you to do. Okay? That's what you're going to do. So you're going to do that walking, right? Uh, I'm going to tell you all things you do. Now, verse 4. After I've spoken these words, you cannot understand them if you don't ask. Neither not. Um, verse 5. But again, I say unto you that if you will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show you all things that you should do. Okay? See you guys. Um, and then he says, and here, here's the crucial line. Behold, this is the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ is to do what? It's right above it. It will show you as you enter in the way, receive the Holy Ghost, it will show, show you all things that you should do. Isn't that cool? He said, what do you do now? I don't know. Whatever the Spirit tells you to do. <laughs> the Spirit is going to lead you to do things and be involved in things and reach out to people and do all kinds of things. That's the doctrine of Christ. Do what He did. And it's not complicated. Have you ever seen that uh, mural that Elder Hells had painted up in the church office building? No. I mean, it's all along the wall. It's probably, I don't know, over 20 feet long and starts with birth and celestial kingdom and goes through back, all these things. And then it even has in there obtaining priesthood, the blessing for the priesthood, love, sacrifice, consecration. And I mean, it, it really paints a picture that, you know, baptism is the starting point. Not, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's not the goal. It's not the goal. It's the gate that we're sliding through on the other side. Uh, and he's, he's just going to say, okay, now you're going to, you're going to do all of these things. So let me, so I'll, I will finish with this. I think it's interesting that we go back to what we were just talking about. He's going to say, don't you know he was holy? He witnessed unto the Father by baptism that he would be obedient. Uh, 2 Nephi 32 uh, what we were just saying, again, I say unto you, if you'll enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show you all things you should do. Okay? So, what happens on Sundays? We come to church and what do we hear? And I will, what? Witness unto thee, O God the Eternal Father, by what? How did you first witness? Baptism. You were baptized. That's the witness. I will witness. So sometimes we talk about uh, the sacrament being a renewal of our baptism covenants. I don't think it's a renewal as much as it is a reminder. It's a reminder of what we already covenanted to do at baptism. So we get this reminder. Again, I witnessed unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that all these people that are doing it will take upon them the name of the Son, which is half happens as we come through the gate, and always remember Him and do what? Keep His commandments which He's given them. And then, if we do that, then what's His side of the covenant? 
that they will always have his spirit to be with them. That's the covenant. And the spirit, that voice of angels, will then tell us what we should do. That's harder because it's not quite so structured. What comes next? I don't know what the spirit tells you to do. Well, I'm not sure what that means. Okay, well, then knock and ask. Yeah. I know this isn't scripture, but I think of Dr. Seuss. Oh, the places you'll go. <laughs> she says, she says, Dr. Seuss says, oh, the places you'll go. You have no idea what callings you might get. And you're going to laugh. You're going, you're going to, to laugh. laugh. You may cry. You're going to get disappointed. You're going to be challenged. But the, but the, the I don't want to say the trick, but always keep going. Yeah. Keep, keep your feet moving. Yeah, because you will, if you accept, if you walk through the gate, you don't know what's on the other side of the gate for you, but the Spirit will tell you what you should do. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because in the Scriptures it talks about being reborn. And the question is, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be reborn? <clears throat> you know, because when we're looking at taking the sacrament, and the sacrament being... You know the the renewing of our covenant. Yeah, right. Or the reminder back, of it. Yeah. We can't go back and be rebaptized. We can't go back and be reborn. Right. Just comparing it to that scripture, but we can. So we're so we're not necessarily renewing. But I like what you said about remembering. Yeah, and so because I've already made the covenant. Now, I, what I covenanted to do was go through the gate and then follow the Spirit about what comes next. Just, just a thought here. When we go through the Scripture, the thing that comes to mind to me is President Nelson is always telling us now we live in a time where we really need to learn to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And I think this puts it in perspective as to why. I think it does, because he's going to lead us all things, and then if you're listening, you'll be surprised all the places you'll go because you weren't anticipating what the Lord may have in store for you. But he really does. So I think it's kind of fun. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, so last thing here then, I will then say. Back to 25, Second uh, Nephi 25. He's going to remind, when he starts this whole thing, he's going to say, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies. Why? Part of what we are responsible to do. Part of what the Spirit will lead us to do. That our children that come after us may know to what source they may look for the remission of their sins. That's part of what we do. We make sure we take care of the next generation. So, Final comments on any of this? Again, there's nothing startling new here, but I just think there's, there's a beautiful ritual and covenants that we're making. Yeah. I mean, part of what I'm thinking of is um, my sister gave a talk, and part of that was about the characteristics of sheep. Sheep are highly intelligent. They explain great emotion. They remember faces. And they're very obedient. And they're very meek. And yeah. they will stay in groups because they have no natural resources. And I think of that as a thought, you know, which is how they are. And that the only reason the sheep would leave the flock is if they're scared or something has happened to separate them. And so this is why we need to keep track of each other. Because we, just like sheep, we rely on the emotions of each other. 
And then I was thinking of the stiff-neckedness and what that meant. And that meant a uh, yoke could not be put on cattle. They would not follow directions. They would not help out. They would not do the things. And that was being stiff-necked. And you combine that with the submission of sheep and the love and the characteristics between a shepherd and sheep. And it just all blends together nicely. Thank you. That's one of the reasons why I just found such rich, beautiful irony in, uh, in the Ottoman Turks showing up in Jerusalem after they conquered it and going, that's the sheep gate into our city? No, that should be the lion gate. <laughs> we want lions. We want to be characterized by lions, not by sheep. We're not sheep. You know, and, and I think sometimes our pride pushes that in that direction. Great point, yeah. Interesting that the Egyptians only had one sphinx there. That they only had one thing? Sphinx, one sphinx. Oh, yeah. They didn't choose. No. They only had part of the... Well, they had the, for one thing, they had the pharaoh. They don't need anybody else. <laughs> well, I've got, I've got that me. That, that, that uh, took a swim in the sea? Yeah, yeah, that, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, yeah, Brent? We started out by talking in the scripture where uh, Nephi said that these were planned always to have the spirit of prophecy. And John the Revelator gave a definition that I really like. Yeah. In chapter 19, he says, For this testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. To prophesy into the future means you're going to run headlong into the doctrine of Christ. I, I, think, that's, I think that's perfect. Probably a good way to end this. Yeah, Jim. When we refer to, by the way, should we capitalize that the same as we would the church? Do you know, I actually, he says, should we capitalize the way? Some of the Bible versions that I read when I'm trying to understand a verse, there are biblical versions. They, they'll, they'll capitalize the way. And they'll put it in big letters. Okay? Probably shouldn't at this point. We know our church today is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But when I see the words the way, in my mind, I, I do capitalize it. Because I think it's that, it was that formal an idea. I, we're in the way. That's a group, but it's also a group in a process. It's a group walking a path that has passed through a gate. And we witness by baptism that we're doing this. So, just great stuff. Um, I bury my testimony that uh, what Nephi is looking at is, is a group of people that have witnessed unto the Father by baptism that they're going to be in the way. But what comes next in the rest of our lives is really a good question. And we spend the rest of our life wearing our lives out, doing what the Spirit directs us to do, or sometimes doing what a leader has been directed to, tell, to call us to do things that we're directed to to do but however it works we're doing his work so anyway i leave that with you in in jesus name amen okay, if i got a can I get a closing prayer anybody brent you wanna thanks thank you so much for the opportunity